Okay. Good morning, everyone. We're continuing with our study of First Peter, doing an overview and overflight. And this morning, we're continuing in the next section where Peter, again, draws the analogy or at least, well, draws out the analogy that of God's calling and anointing and leading Israel of the Old Testament into the wilderness to live among the nations. You remember when they crossed the Jordan, to live among the nations of the world, knowing full well that when he called Israel out of bondage, out of the, the picture is out of the domination of Pharaoh. And when he draws them out of that and leads them into his promised land, where the land where he would be their God and they would be his people, in the midst of foreigners and those who don't know God. And the nation of Israel was to be the people that would so display the presence, the glory, the majesty, the power of God among these nations. But as a result of that, and because they were in the area where these nations existed, just because of their presence as God's people, the nations of the world, if you would, that was their world, would be antagonistic to them and contrary to them. And they would experience all kinds of sufferings because of it. But God was going to use the, the difficult circumstances, their sufferings, their whatever, to further demonstrate that he is greater than all of it, that in his people, they could live in the midst of suffering triumphantly, displaying the glory of God. Amen? So the picture is Israel that Peter is saying. Remember Israel. You're just like Israel in that kind of respect. Israel foreshadowing the church. And so last week we talked about that picture being applied as their new identity, their new family. This morning... The apostle in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is going to compare the church with Israel in two particular areas. They are now not only God's new identity, new family, but they are God's new temple, and they are also God's new house, temple house and God's new kingdom. Okay, that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So you see the, the context that Peter is putting them in. You are what God has foreshadowed in the old is now being fulfilled in the new. So let's continue that this morning. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter is, again, preparing to apply the theology that he's already laid down. Remember, just a quick comment. Doctrine or theology is always the study of God and the study of who God is, how he is, of God's purpose, of God's ways, you know, all of that. It's all about God. That is the foundation or the fundamental issue or the fundamental 
context which we need to understand in order to live out to be God's people. So the root of our life is theology, and the fruit of our life is how we live out that theology. So he's already laid down some theological or doctrinal aspects in the previous verses, and he's going to continue that. But before he does, remember there is an intermixing here in this letter, which is typical of the apostle apostolic teaching of doctrine and practice. And so he's going to say something about their practice as he, uh, before he applies the, uh, the doctrine of they are the new temple and they are the new kingdom. So he says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So it begins this way. Now, why does he say therefore? What does therefore relate to? What is therefore therefore? Because of their new identity, because God has called them, because they are now the people of God. Peter, Peter is collecting all that he has said, specifically in the last few verses, but basically all that he said, and he's gathering up again. All that you, I've been talking to you about, all that the Holy Spirit has shown you, all that the Holy Spirit has taught you about your practice, therefore, let's gather that up. As a result of all of that, therefore, putting aside, and he lists various categories of sin. So putting aside, that's an interesting comment. Because one of the aspects that I've seen in my own life, but in the lives of several people with whom I have met over the years, and I've met with a few folks. There are several of you in here whom I've met with. And unfortunately, most of the time, our meeting as pastors or elders with people in the church has to do with the struggles that they're having. And and that's okay. That's okay. And one of the one of the refrains when there is sin activity, relational problems, uh, just attitudes of the heart, unforgiveness, whatever it is, one of the basic refrains is this, I can't do it. It's too difficult. And so what Peter is facing is the same thing that we face. Here's a list of sins. And so you can just hear the people, yeah, I do that, but I, I, I struggle with this area. I can't do it. We understand that. But he doesn't go into a long psychological thing, whatever. He says, look, here are a bunch of sins. And by obviously, this is no uh, list that is comprehensive. It's representative. What is the most basic thing we are called to do when the Holy Spirit shows us we have a sin issue in our life. What is the most basic thing we're called to do? Is what? Stop it. Stop it. That's the most basic, practical instruction you can receive. Based on who God is, based on what God has done for us, based on what God is doing in us, based on God's sovereignty, his power, his omniscience, etc., etc., based on who this God is in us, what is our response to sin to be? What, Jody? What? Stop it. 
And when we've said that to people, they say, well, that's too simplistic. Well, thank God it is, because if it were any more complicated than that, if we can't do this most simplistic thing, Darlene, how could we do anything else? He doesn't say, okay, now here's what you need to do. You need to go torture yourself this way, walk on hot bricks. You need to go say so many, you know, prayer times here. No, he just says what? What does he say? Rosa, what? Stop it. How do you say that in Spanish? See, okay, okay. I understood that. Stop it. You see, now that they are members of God's family, there's so much here to teach. Just remember, do, is it in your notes I have uh, St. Corinthians 5.17? What does 5.17 say? If any person is in Christ, how many of us are in Christ? This is my name on it. Since or if Peter is in Christ, behold what? He's a new what? Creature. He's a new creation. He's a new creature. What else? What? Behold what? How much? Old, how many things? All things have what? Old things, all the old sin, you know, um, uh, domination and so on has what? Passed away and behold what? All things have become new. <clears throat> we are new creatures in Christ. Because of that, we are to stop practicing the deeds. Remember Galatians 5, 19 to 21 of the former, our former life under our former father, Satan. Remember what Jesus said in John eight forty four: Father, Satan is a liar. You are of your father, the devil. And he was a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. Romans 6, 12 to 13, Paul has talked about all these doctrinal issues about justification and so on. Our life in Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, 5 and whatever. <clears throat> and then he comes to the place, he says, should we continue to sin? He says, by no means. We're not supposed to sin anymore. And then he comes here in chapter 6, verse 12. He said, therefore, stop sinning. Do you, do you see what he Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. What? But present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Stop it. How many of you know? They're right, they're right over here. Um, this is, we're talking to someone who's just coming in. How many of you have at least one sin issue in your life that you know about? Everybody, anybody not raising your hand? Steve, you should have raised your hand. Your wife is about to knock you out of the chair. I'm saving Steve's life just since Sissy was about to whatever. Okay, everybody has a sin issue. Here's the question. Why are we still doing it? Why do you still do it? Why do I still do it if I do? Why? Why? Somebody help me. Why are you still doing it? I, I can't help. Machine. Wait, wait. Take off your mask. Because I want to. Did, can you hear back there, Warren? Because I want to. She continues it because she wants to continue it, Warren. Now, here, here, if you continue to sin, you do so, David, because you want to. And your wanting to is wanting 
in disregard of who God is, how God is, what he's done, or whatever. It's as if you're saying, God, you just shut up right now. I'm going to do my stuff. How many of you think that way when we're actually being tempted? But what is the reality? Isn't that the reality? So what do we do with these sin issues? What? Stop it. Now, we won't go through the issues because that's not the scope of the class. So Peter gives them a representative list of these deeds, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Like a spiritual doctor, Peter tells them that these kinds of practices that exist in a believer are indicative of a deficient spiritual diet. So what is he going to do? He said, why are these practices in your life? Why are you having such struggles? Patsy, why aren't you able to overcome these things? Why are they continually so easily and quickly overcoming us? Why? Because one of the most fundamental reasons is because we are not eating the proper spiritual food. If you don't, do you eat regularly? Stand up. See, this is what happens when you eat regularly. <laughs> they get big. But suppose we don't eat regularly. What happens? What happens to our body when we don't nourish it correctly? What happens? We get sick. We get emaciated. We get weak. We can't fight diseases. We don't function well. May I say that probably the most basic reason of all that we are so easily being overcome by sin is that our spiritual diet is sufficient. So what does the apostle say in verse 2? He says, like newborn babies long for the milk of the word. How many of you have ever had children or grandchildren? So once the child's born, you take them home and you begin, Gail, to give them meat and potatoes, babes, because meat and potatoes, that's put, you know, that's strong, right? So we start with meat and potatoes, correct? What happens when you take your child home and you don't feed that child every two hours? Well, first of all, you're going to have to put up with all the yelling and the screaming. But you just don't because you just feel, I was, ra- I, you know, I only ate two meals a day. So my child's going to eat two meals a day. How long, Carrie, would your child last? But you see, we think, well, I, I do a little bit of the word when I can or whatever. My diet of the word is this and that. But my diet listening to the news is, woo. Or my diet, doing, oh, well, we're not saying you should listen to the word all day long. Certainly not. But we are saying that there needs to be a steady diet. Every one of us should, oh, I've got to get going on this. Every one of us should have a specific time to sit and either read or listen to the word of God. Every one of us. I dare say that A.J. DeShari eats dinner at a certain time almost every night. Right, A.J.? And if he doesn't, Darlene, what happens? You get an earful. You see, the word of God is the only effective nourishment for our souls. Matthew 5, 6. Turn off the news if it's in your way. If you have no time, then turn off things like the news or whatever it is. Do your word and then turn on the news or read the whatever's after you've had your time with God. Stop being lazy. Stop it. Matthew 5, 6, what does it say? Blessed are they who what? Hunger and 
thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. He says, like newborn babies, long for the milk of the word. Why? So that in it you may grow in respect to, to salvation. We're not going to grow in salvation, maturity in Christ. We're not putting on the full armor of God, God as in Galatians chapter 6. We're not doing it unless we're in the word regularly and sufficiently. Do we understand that there's no excuse for not having a regular, good, consistent, steady diet of the word of God? If you are not doing it, stop not doing it and start doing it. And do it by faith. That as you do it, the Holy Spirit is ministering to you. He's cleansing you. He's building you up. He's giving you revelation. Even though you may hear a chapter or read a chapter and then you don't feel anything, Holy Spirit is at work in you. So you, you've been sick. You go to the doctor and he says, here, take a pill a day and whatever. So you took a pill and all of a sudden you say, when do you say, I don't feel any different. I just took the pill. I don't feel any different. I'm not taking the pill anymore. Why take the pill? I don't feel any different. Do you do that? No, you trust your doctor to know. You know that the pill is at work in you, don't you? This is how we need to approach the word of God. Dr. Jesus prescribes his word on a regular basis. As we regularly feed on the word of God, we will grow in our relationship with Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verse 4. Abide in me. What does abide mean? Live with, stay with, hang around, not visit, abide. Abide with me and I in you. I, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. <clears throat> so the fruit of obedience, the fruit of righteousness will not grow sufficiently. Unless we abide in him. And to the extent that we are abiding. Then we're finding out. I am being strengthened. My mind is being cleansed. I am being changed by the Holy Spirit. Things are happening. I'm recognizing the work of God. I am being used in greater wisdom and discernment to other brothers. To people in the family. God is really at work in me. Because I'm feeding on the life of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 19, 7 to 14. Do you have that listed there? These 14 verses, I'm sorry, these eight verses here. And I'm just going to leave it there. You can read those. This is a short list of just some of the benefits of feeding on the word of God. For instance, how many of you need your soul restored? How many of you need soul restoration? Is that part of the thing that the word does? Is there anything in here about restoring the soul? What does the first verse say? The law of the Lord, the word of God, is what? Perfect. What does it do? Restoring the soul. How many of you find yourselves just lack of wisdom, just not knowing what to do and how to do and what? How many of you? Any of you? What does it say? The testimony. Again, these are various synonyms of the word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure what? Making wise the simple and, and so on. 
So he says, feed the, uh, on the word of God like newborn babies so that you may grow in respect to salvation. Verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. Now, why does he say if? If you have tasted. Well, two things here. The word if can be translated since, since you have tasted. Now, if your theology is, I don't believe that once a person is saved, he can ever fall away, then you certainly want to, don't want to put if in there, Linda. If you have tasted. What does that infer? <laughs> you may lose this thing. Do you see the word if in case? It looks like that. If you've tasted. So some translators have put sense in there. Well, sense is a translation of this word, but the preferable translation is if. What is he saying here? He's not saying you may lose your salvation if you don't read the word well enough, Cody. He's not saying that. Yeah, he's not saying that. He's saying if as a matter of proof, a matter of growing into this. He's not saying if as if you're not going to, you know, as if you will fall away. But he's also saying that the only proof of your salvation is your continuance in Christ. And one of the primary and most basic proofs that we are really God's people is that we are in his word. That we are receiving his life through the word. So if you're God's people, what? Do it. If you're a man, stand up to this. How many of you have heard that kind of thing? Well, that's not necessarily a question about his physical manhood, his physiological state. It's about his psyche as a man. So if you're a believer, then do these things. So he says if, and again, in John eight thirty one, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So, do we believe in the security and the preservation of believers? Do we? In other words, I'll put it the way I don't want to say it, that once saved, always saved. That's not a good way to put it. Do we believe in the security and the perseverance and the preservation of the believers? Do we believe that? Yes. Well, what is the only proof that you're saved? What does Jesus just said? I just read that verse. If you do what? If you do what? Continue in my word, what? Then you are what? Truly my disciples. He didn't just say continue in going to church, whatever. Continue in my word. Continue in abiding with me. I don't think any of us in this room, hopefully none of you in television land, have this difficulty. But what he's saying is this. We have to stop falling for the culture of this world and the busyness or the whatever it is and stop that and begin to make our relationship with Christ the, through the study of the word, through worship, through prayer, through coming to church, even being here on Sunday morning, the primary activity of our lives. Amen? Because let's face it, if Jesus should tarry, I think there are only a handful of people 50 years from now who are going to be in this room continuing to study the word. Where do you think the rest of us are going to be in 50 years? Where? With the Lord. We want to continue so that when he returns, we will be able to receive his great approbation. Well done.
So their continuance in the word is proof of that. They abide in Jesus. John 15, 8. Remember what that says? In this way is my Father glorified. That what? That you bear much fruit. And so what? Prove to be my disciples. But what does Philippians 1, 6 say? I think I have it here. Yeah. What does Paul say in Philippians 1, 6, speaking to the church? I am persuaded of this very one thing, that he who has begun the good work, a good work, what good work? Salvation. Will do what? Complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about losing something. We're talking about growing in this relationship with God. Now, we are God's new temple. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, Jesus is the stone, we are living stones. You see, the analogy is of a living building. As living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. By the way, do you all have in there other references? Hmm? Okay, these are just references that I felt to put in there. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, lay, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious, this precious value then is for you who believe but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this stone has become the very corner stone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this tomb they were also appointed. So what, is he, what analogy is he using here? The Old Testament tabernacle that became the temple. You remember that? What was the temple? What was the tabernacle? Essentially, what was it? It was the physical location on earth that housed the very presence of God. Amen. God dwells everywhere in all his creation, obviously. But his physical, personal presence, his great Shekinah glory, his presence to be with his people and for his people, his relational presence is with them in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle or in the temple, correct? And so you remember the priests would go in there and they make sacrifices at the place of worship. It was a place of, uh, of offerings. It was a place of celebration. It is the center of Israel's life is the tabernacle or the temple. You remember that. So... In the new, and then so in the tabernacle, God lived with them. Listen, Exodus 40, 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So at the end of Exodus, all this preparation was made to build the tabernacle. And once it's built, Moses can't go in. Why? Because the glory of the Lord has prevented it. That's how Exodus ends. Now, what is the uh, solution to that? Moses can't even go into this tabernacle that the Lord says, build it for my presence so we can dwell together, build this. Why can't he come into the presence of the Lord? What does the Lord do to solve that problem? Leviticus. He gives us Leviticus, which is, remember, the priesthood and the sacrificial system, etc., and all the regulations there. To, he gives them Leviticus as the very means in the Old Testament to make them fit for coming into the presence of God. Once you get Leviticus set down, then the priests and Moses whoever can go in, the high priest, you know, can go in to the sanctuary. 
or to the tabernacle. And so Leviticus is a wonderful picture of the sacrificial life and death shedding of the blood of the lamb and the resurrection so that Jesus has done everything making us fit what? To be the presence, uh, to be the tabernacle in whom God's presence dwells, correctly? So you see the relationship there. And once that happens, you have Exodus preparing. You can't go in. Leviticus making you fit. Then in Numbers, we begin to move forward. Remember, the nation begins to move. You remember the Old Testament, how it's constructed, hopefully. You'll remember some of that. Now, in the New Testament, we are God's temple. Correct? God no longer dwells in buildings made by hands. Where does he live? In us. This building we call church, but we are the church. We are the living stones of God. Now, here's what I felt to do. Listen to this. Let's see how the Old Testament foreshadows who we are. In 1 Chronicles 29, 23, we see this statement. Solomon sat on the throne. Yeah, I have it there. Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord over Israel. Remember, David had done everything to prepare for the building of the temple. Do you remember that? He'd done everything to prepare for the building of the temple. But the Lord says, you will not build the temple because you're a man of bloodshedding. Who was a man of bloodshedding doing everything to prepare for the building? Who? Who is the man who has shed blood to prepare for the building of God's temple? Jesus has, right? David is a picture of the first advent of Jesus on earth in this category. He's a picture of that. So what happens when David dies, his greatest son ascends the throne. And for the first and only time, a king is on the throne of the Lord over Israel. In other words, this is the exalted throne where Solomon is sitting. Do you see that? It's a picture of the exaltation of the king. Whom does that talk about? After Jesus dies, he rises, and what does he do? He ascends into heaven. So let's look at it. Hebrews 8.1. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So you see the picture. David has done all that he needs to. Jesus is the son of David in his first um, advent. He does everything. To set up the building of the temple. He has all the materials. You just go back and read it. All, everything's been bought, purchased, and everything else. All the lumber is in the side yard over there. Solomon, I'm not going to be able to build this because the Lord said I've shed blood. But you're going to be building it. In the first advent, Jesus comes to prepare all the way, the materials, etc., for the construction of the building. But he cannot build the building until he pays the sacrificial death. And then he rises from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven to become king of kings and lord of lords, given authority over heaven and earth. Now he has the right and the authority given to him by God the Father to start the building process. Amen? Do we see how that is? Solomon on the throne. Let's start the work. Second Chronicles 7, 1, 2. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, remember they built the temple. Solomon has finished praying. Fire came down from heaven, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Solomon prays. And when Solomon prays, 
the Holy Spirit, the glory of God, does what? Fills the house. Do you, do you just see that? So what do we have? Jesus in John 14, 16, and 17, he says, I will ask the Father. When will he ask the Father? When he's the king sitting on the throne of God. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. You remember that? So what do we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 3? When the day of Pentecost had come, you see, Jesus said, when I sit on the throne of God, when I do what was pictured and foreshadowed by Solomon, the great king, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send the Spirit to fill my house, as happened when Solomon prayed, and the Lord filled the temple. And the day of Pentecost had come, and when they were all gathered in one place, there suddenly came, what, heaven, a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the house. And there were, that when they were sitting, and there appeared on them tongues as of fire. What was one of the things that came down in Second Chronicles 7? Fire. Fire. The cleansing, purifying presence of God. And the same thing happens on the day of Pentecost when the church is birthed by the coming of the Holy Spirit who has been sent by King Jesus by the authority of God the Father. You see the picture here. Therefore, in Ephesians 2, 19 and 22, I've just kind of put a couple of verses together. Paul explains the ongoing result. So what is the ongoing result? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are God's household. You're growing up into a holy temple in the Lord. We're growing up. And what is the mechanism of our growing? Various things, but one of the most basic is we're feeding on the word of God. We're a new kingdom in verses 8 to 10. But you are a chosen people, a race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. As Israel was God's own possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember in Exodus, there are now God's royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so in the rest of verse 9, Peter explains the purpose for them being, why are you? Why? Verse 9, so that you may look. Verse 9 is very, very important. This is one of those big purpose statements. Why have you been saved? Why are you sitting here today? Why are you experiencing everything? Why is God calling you to be obedient? Why is God calling you to rejoice in tribulation? Why is God calling you to confess your sin, to resist sin? Why? Why is he calling you to be here with the believers? Why is he calling us to give? Why is he calling us to be faithful? Why? Look at verse 9. The second part, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Remember, Israel, same thing, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What verse do I see there? I didn't put it in here. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1.13. You can just jot that down. You should know that automatically as a reference. Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that they what? In that they may what? See your good works and glorify your Father in, who is in heaven. What good works? The works of God in you. For you were not a people, but now you therefore are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? Rather, let me ask you this. How are we to respond to suffering in a way that 
proclaims the excellency of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter chapter 2, the second part of verse 9. What is the greatest suffering that we will experience? What is the greatest struggle that we experience? What is it? Against myself. Your greatest battle is not external, but it's internal. Your greatest weapon to be used in this greatest battle is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You remember someone said that somewhere to somebody. You see that in Ephesians 6. Our greatest battle is in me. My battle is not against Jean. Hers is not against me. Our battle is not against our wives or our husbands or our relatives or friends. This stuff that we're feeling inside. Are you connecting with me right now? This stuff that we're feeling inside when things are going on and all of that. What is God showing us, Joe? The Holy Spirit is battling against your flesh. Calling you to submit to his way. And to allow him to give you and function repentingly in your life. Renee, what is your greatest battle? With your wife, your children, your grandchildren, your relatives, with Steve Roberts? No. What is your greatest battle, brother? Against yourself. Todd, what is your greatest battle? Now, I see your point, but what is it? You are your greatest enemy. Satan isn't my greatest enemy. He can be overcome with a word of power. I am my greatest enemy. Do we see that? My flesh. Until we see that, we're going to continue to point elsewhere. Well, this is what they do, and they say that, and this is happening, and whatever. And we continually do what Adam and Eve did. What? The first time God confronted them with their sin, pointing that way. Well, maybe it was this way. I don't know. Where's my greatest suffering? In me against myself. You see, River, I can't get away from me. If I live in a new city, I'm still dragging the old flesh with me. If I get a new job, I still have the same sin principle in me. Forgiven, yes, no longer under the authority of Satan, but still too susceptible to the deceiving power of Satan. We're the people of God. We are called to stop sinning. And we're called to do that through various means that we've talked about. For what power, what reason? Second, on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the second part of it, what? Why? Why? Because he has what? Somebody help me. What that verse says again? He has what? Called us out of what? Darkness into his marvelous light. That we may show what? Forth the excellencies. Well, that comes first. The excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light. So next week, 
will continue in the next big section. Thank you.